Welcome to Present Value. Hi, listeners. Caroline Wright here. We are excited to share an outstanding conversation between Dr. Susan Fleming and Michael Brady. The conversation is an educational tour through some major topics in gender bias. We begin with some definitional groundwork about bias and stereotypes, then go deep into gender bias topics such as the double bind, the motherhood penalty, similarity attraction, and what organizations can do to combat these important issues. Dr. Fleming brings a wealth of experience to this conversation outside academia, and this episode is a must listen. And now, Present Value with Michael Brady and Dr. Susan Fleming. We are excited to have Dr. Susan Fleming here in the studio with us for this episode. Dr. Fleming was a senior lecturer at Cornell from 2010 to 2018, teaching women in leadership and entrepreneurship. Dr. Fleming earned her BA from the University of Virginia in Economics and Asian Studies and an MS and PhD in Management and Organizations from Cornell. Before coming to academia, she began her career as an analyst at Morgan Stanley and rose to partner at Capital Z Financial Services Partners. She has served as a board member of numerous public companies and nonprofits, including RLI and Virtus Investment Partners. She is a frequent speaker on issues of gender bias and entrepreneurship, and we're thrilled to have her join us on Present Value. Dr. Fleming, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Dr. Fleming, let's start with your background. You have taken a fascinating journey from Wall Street to private equity to academia and now beyond. We'd love to hear about your career before academia, and maybe you could share what led you to an interest in gender bias. I'd love to tell you about that, but first, please call me Susan. Okay, Susan. I don't stand on too much formality. When I graduated from college at the University of Virginia, I had done a little bit of work with a company around banks and thrifts as a part-time intern in the summers. And so I joined Morgan Stanley as an analyst in M&A within the financial services group, so buying and selling insurance companies and things like that. And ultimately ended up working a lot on insurance and was recruited to join a private equity fund when I was in my third year at Morgan Stanley that focused on investing in the in insurance industry. And so ended up staying there for about 10, 9, 10 years. We raised a second fund after the first one that was a little under $2 billion and worked my way up to becoming a partner of that firm in 2001 and had a great experience. My firm was all male, a bit like a locker room, but a lot of fun as well. Very aggressive environment, which happened to fit my personality. And I think at the same time, maybe a little more aggressive than I would lean to, but you adapt to your situation. I felt like I had a lot of great opportunities. And ultimately, Despite all of that, at the end of 2003, I decided to, you know, quote, retire from the industry, which was sort of laughable because I was 33 and I had no intention (laughs) of retiring, but I was ready to leave private equity. Despite the fact that I'd had a really good experience, I wanted to do something more socially oriented. I think at that time, we had just come through the internet bubble and it wasn't a very fun time. It's funny, in my teaching here at Cornell, in my entrepreneurship classes, I'll talk about people having three different reasons that they work. It can be for love of the work, it can be for money, and it can be for love of the people. 
I really did love the people and the culture initially, and obviously I was making good money, and I really enjoyed the work. But I had hit a point by 2003 that I had accomplished what I wanted to there, and the only reason for me to stay at that point really would have been for money, and that was never my main driver. So I quit thinking I would maybe go work for an overseas and doing development work or start a social venture capital fund or maybe teach because my father had been a college professor. And what I had realized in my time at Capital Z Partners, they called me the den mother. I did all the hiring and the mentoring of all the associates. And I really loved that. And so I thought I might like being in a teaching environment. As it turned out, I ended up in Ithaca for personal reasons. So here was this university, this amazing university, where I could go and try out some research to see if I wanted to get a graduate degree. I had thought about and looked into opportunities for teaching, but it turned out that a college wasn't going to let me teach without a graduate degree. So um, my father said, oh, go, get, go get a PhD. But it's a lot of work, so you better find something you're really interested in. And I considered finance and some different things, but was connected with a professor at the Johnson School, Melissa Thomas Hunt, who was so kind to let me do research with her. And another professor in sociology, Shelley Corral, who is one of the most well-known gender experts at the time here and now at Stanford. And both of them were so gracious to let me sort of sit in on their classes and, and try out research. And what I discovered is that in reading all of this information about gender bias and things like Women Don't Ask, it's a great book about women in negotiations, and reading some of the work of the Diana Project, which continues today to look at the representation of women in private equity and venture capital and funding to women entrepreneurs. I was fascinated. I was infuriated, just horrified. All of this reading that I did helped me reinterpret my own experience on Wall Street, which had been positive, but was also littered with me being different, me having to either dial back on my aggressiveness or dial up on it, depending on the situation, or be more feminine, all of these things. It really opened my eyes to understanding a lot of what was around me. Specifically, Women Don't Ask, I realized for the first time that you're supposed to negotiate your compensation. You're supposed to negotiate for your bonus and your carry in the fund and your salary. Now, that might seem laughable to a more informed audience, but at the time, I was a good girl. I was appreciative that I got promoted. I was very well paid. And I think my mindset was that I was just grateful to be there, partly, I think, because there were no other women around, and some part of me internalized that. I wasn't going to push it by being greedy or self-interested in negotiating for my own compensation. So I was pretty horrified and, of course, went back and talked to some of my peers, all of whom had been negotiating, all of my male peers who had been negotiating their salaries. And I never really did try to figure out how much money I left on the table, but it was probably substantial. Good thing is money was not my main driver because I gave a lot of it away. But, you know, it's it was an interesting lesson. And women are socialized to not be too self-interested and not to be too greedy. So, you know, in retrospect, perhaps if I had taken the path of negotiating heavily and aggressively, like I did for in all the deals we did, you know, maybe I wouldn't have made it to the top. You know, there could have been a cost to that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's actually get right into gender bias, which is really your main focus now and was your main focus while you were a professor here at Cornell. 
So gender bias has really become an important topic across universities and is becoming an important issue for companies as well. There's a lot to talk about here, and we're definitely going to get into concepts like the double bind, the motherhood penalty, and similarity attraction bias. But before we do, maybe you could define some terms for us and then share some of the big issues that you're thinking about. Okay, so I can particularly define the terms that you just mentioned, but I first might just take a step back and talk about what stereotypes are and what gender stereotypes or stereotypes in general are, if that would be helpful. Yeah, please, let's just lay some groundwork, however you'd like to. So, I mean, people hear the word stereotype and bias and things like that all the time, and I think it's important for people to understand that stereotypes at their core are simply cognitive shortcuts. So when individuals interact with other people, especially people that are new to them, say I'm walking into a room with 30 people a first day of class, I cannot possibly know individuating information about those people in a very short time. I have to figure out how am I going to behave in this room? What's the relationship? What kind of behavior can I expect from those individuals? And a quick shorthand way of figuring out how to act with each person is to look at them and make assumptions very quickly, very unconsciously about them based on their demographic characteristics. And so we do that in order for good intentions, usually, in order to figure out how to make our way through the world until we learn more individual information about those people. The problem with that, and I'll speak specifically to gender stereotypes, is, and this works for any kind of stereotype, is that as soon as I categorize people into a group of men versus women, or perhaps non-binary, right, that's even more complex, I can't categorize them. As soon as I do that, I'm also immediately associating certain behavioral expectations and characteristics that go with my and society's belief system about what a typical man is like and what a typical woman is like. And in doing so, again, maybe not necessarily so problematic if it's just, huh, that's interesting information. It's just with stereotypes, we then use that information often in a prescriptive way such that if the man that we're interacting with now doesn't meet that stereotype and behave the way that we expect him to behave, there could be backlash, likewise with a woman. Just as a a quick example, I might walk into a room, a party, and I think, oh, man, I'm going to talk to him about sports. Her, I'm going to talk to her about fashion. And I start engaging in these conversations and you know, thinking, oh, this woman's going to be interested in fashion and design, and she's going to be fairly soft-spoken, and, you know, maybe she's a a homemaker, not, you know, working professionally. I could be completely wrong. And in behaving and bringing those topics up to her, not only am I kind of leading us down a path that may not allow her to be authentically herself, but also I'm telling her how I want and expect her to behave, which may force her into behavior that isn't who she is, right? So I've experienced this throughout my life and career where, you know, I've sat on multiple boards of directors, and because of stereotypes that women are supposed to be more soft-spoken, not interrupt, less aggressive, maybe less good at finance, walking into those rooms, I'm very conscious, especially if I'm the only woman in the room, which was the case on five of the seven boards I've been on, I'm very conscious of my gender, which makes me more self-conscious, maybe dialing back or adjusting my behavior more than one of the men in the room might feel they need to adjust their behavior. Right, because they're in the majority. 
So, you know, that's a bit of a little bit of a class on stereotypes, but they are often, they're cognitive shortcuts that can be right, but are very problematic when they're wrong. Thinking back to some of what you said earlier, I feel like some people might say, oh, well, I don't have these stereotypes or these biases. But in reality, by the mere act of using the mental shortcut to put someone into a group, you do. Would you agree with that? I do. I, and, and that includes me. I mean, I teach and think about this. We all have biases and, and lots of kinds of biases. There's decision biases and all kinds of different biases. But we absolutely all use stereotypes. And it's because we have grown up in a social context where there are certain belief systems about the nature of gender or race or disability or age or class. I mean, there's so many different belief systems that we've grown up in. And these are mostly being used at an unconscious level. They're more likely to be used when you're dealing with ambiguity, when you're in a rush, when you're tired, or when difference is highlighted, where one group is significantly in the minority. And the reason that's useful is a differentiator. If I walk into a room and it's 100% female, I'm not going to differentiate based on gender. Right, there's no mental shortcut. I'm going to look at age or race or... And different societies will change what they're going to differentiate on. But pretty much universally across societies, the first thing people differentiate on and categorize on is gender. The second will vary depending on the society. In some societies, race is a big deal, and others, age might be a bigger deal or class. So gender is pretty much always at play in most situations. I think the groundwork is really helpful. Let's get into some of the concepts I mentioned earlier. Let's, let's get into the double bind. I think this is a really important concept for our listeners to learn about and reflect on, and I'll admit it was important for me to learn about as I prepared for our conversation. So what is the double bind? Okay, so I already gave an example of it in some ways, but the idea of the double bind, so leadership, competence, things like that are stereotyped generally to be masculine traits. Why? Because we look around the world and we see who's mostly in charge and they're mostly men. And that's historically been the case. So when people think about who they would follow or look to for expertise or competence, et cetera, they're going to generally associate that with male traits. On the flip side, so women that want to aspire to those kind of leadership roles or that want to be in charge or even take the lead in a group, they need to demonstrate some of those masculine characteristics in order to be taken seriously and being seen as competent. On the flip side, they also, in order to be seen as appropriate, likable females, who are correctly female and meet those prescriptive stereotypes about what women are like, which generally fall into the category of what academics call it's communal. So helpful, kind, emotional, more passive, nurturing, things like that. In order to be seen as appropriately female, they have to demonstrate some of those characteristics. And the problem is it's really hard to be sweet and tough simultaneously at just the right degree to be acceptable to whatever that specific context is. So women have to navigate this tightrope, this balance between appropriately masculine to be seen as competent and appropriately feminine to be seen as likable. And what's even more tricky about it is the, the right balance changes depending on who they're interacting with, what the context is, and what they're doing. 
Because, for example, if you are in a situation where you're doing a very male-tasked type sort of thing, women are going to probably have to amp up their, their masculine chops to demonstrate that they're competent. In another instance, and, and again, going back to boardrooms where I'm always the youngest and I was almost always the only female, dealing with a lot of high-powered, much older white males. In that instance, they're more traditional. So their expectation of what femininity is and the degree of appropriate level of aggressiveness is going to be different than if I'm dealing with a 30-year-old, even male, right, male, a 30-year-old who has, you know, had a mom and dad who both worked and they've played sports directly with women interacting. So their version of what's the right level of balancing the double bind is going to be different than in a situation where you're dealing with perhaps an older, more traditional person. So is there advice to give here to help, or is this just an impossible balance to strike? Many of our listeners out there are already leaders within their organizations or will be soon. So what can you tell young women leaders about how to navigate the double bind? So first of all, it's definitely not impossible because I did it throughout my career, sometimes successfully, sometimes less successfully. But I wouldn't have made it to where I am if I hadn't found that balance somehow. The reality is people that fail to make that balance either are never taken seriously or they ultimately get pushed out because they're seen as too masculine, too aggressive and, you know, a bull in a china shop or a bitch or whatever you want to call it. When you hear those labels, that's usually failure to be appropriately feminine. So it's not impossible because look around. We do have women leaders. We do have people moving up. I definitely have advice that I can give around this. The first piece of advice is just simply be aware of what's going on. One of the things that I find that is so hideous and insidious about stereotypes is when we internalize them to ourselves and when we assume that we as individuals, whether you're a man or a woman, a person of color, a white person, whatever the stereotype is you're dealing with, that you internalize it as you are the problem. So I think it can be extremely empowering for women just to know about this so that when somebody is giving them advice in maybe a job performance review where they get advice from a few different people and one's telling them they need to dial it up and the other's telling them that they need to hold back and not be so aggressive, that they at least understand what's driving it and it's not them, right? I mean, it might be them. You always want to question, but usually it's that they're not finding that middle ground and it's based in stereotypes and, and social expectations, not in what they're inherently doing differently than the guy sitting next to them. So the same level of aggressiveness from a woman that's exactly what a guy next to her is doing will be perceived differently. Just as a man being, you know, much more vulnerable or showing a lot more emotion will be seen differently than if a woman does it. Okay? Now, men don't have to navigate the double bind in leadership because leadership is already masculine type. So they just act how they act and they're totally hitting the mark. But there's other times that stereotypes can can work against men. So what advice would I give? I give this advice all the time and I always prefit by saying that it's not fair and it stinks. And I only hope that I give this advice for some period of time and then we fix the world and people stop requiring women to navigate this double bind. So I'm going to caveat that because I think it's really important. And each individual has to make their own assessment of how much they are willing to adjust their own behavior 
in ways that maybe don't feel authentic in order to get to the next level. So this is sort of the pragmatic, it stinks advice, but it is what it is. The structure should change, but the how should the should individual, yeah. you know, swim upstream within it or something? Yeah, and while, and, you know, I give this advice because the reality is that a huge part of having the structure change is getting more women into leadership. And if they're all falling out because they won't, they don't navigate the double bind, then we aren't going to fix it. Ah, that's right. Really and, and it's not only women, that's not the only way to fix it, but it's part of it. Yeah. So the advice I would give is be very conscious of your context all the time. Know things like whenever gender stereotypes are more highlighted, you have to be more conscious of navigating the double bind. So if you are in a situation where you are significantly in the minority, Genders operating that instead of it as a background noise, it's coming to the forefront because it's now a really useful differentiator for people looking around the room. In that instance, you have to be more conscious of the double bind. If you are engaged in activities that are more masculine typed, you need to be more conscious of the double bind. Anything that is going to highlight stereotypes, you have to pay more attention. You also have to think about what are the stereotype expectations and knowledge of the people you're dealing with. So if you are dealing and interacting with somebody that is very thoughtful about gender, is an explicit feminist, male or female, you know, you might not have to navigate as much. Or someone that has, is knowledgeable about the double bind, they're aware you can dial up and say, you know, be your normal aggressive self if that's your style. And even name it to them and say, hey, I know I'm being maybe aggressive for a stereotypical woman, but, you know, I feel really strongly about this point. Sometimes naming what's going on can be helpful. Put it out there on the table, and it, it lets everybody kind of realize, oh, gosh, maybe I was using a cognitive shortcut stereotype here that was unconscious, and I don't want to do that, and so now I'm going to just listen to what she's saying. This is simply just some person being aggressive about this point. or Correct. On the flip side, women tend to, so I, it's funny when I talk about this stuff, I'm always thinking about how I have to dial back because I'm more of a naturally aggressive personality, which is counter-stereotype. Most women, I would say, have to dial up. They have to fight a little bit harder to have their voice heard than maybe they would want to. Sheryl Sandberg gave the advice that wherever you are on the spectrum, if you lean aggressive, dial back. If you tend to personality, be more you know, passive, less, more feminine, you're going to have to dial it up. Then let's add on another layer, depending on what your race is, the expectations are different depending on your race. So Asians suffer from stereotypes about being very quiet and passive. So a female Asian who acts aggressively is going to have that highlighted. It's going to be much more, taken as much more aggressive than an African-American woman who is being the same level of aggressive. Why? Because there's more stereotypes about African-Americans being more aggressive. So there's more latitude as long as they don't tip over into that point of the angry black woman or man, which is horrible, and then you're done. So, you know, there's these bands of what's socially expected and acceptable that are shifting depending on context, but are also very much informed by not just your gender, but other things like race and age. It's interesting to hear you talk about the intersectionality of it all, because it really, I think those examples really highlight that this is not just a two-dimensional issue. Yeah, and there's intersectionality around individual identities. And should I define intersectionality for uh, you? Oh, sure, please. Yeah, so intersectionality is a term that was coined, I think, decades ago by a scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw. 
And the reason that she came up with this is she actually has a great TED Talk where she talks about this, where there was a court case against, I think it was General Motors, where the Supreme Court basically found that an African-American woman suing for discrimination lost the case because GM would hire African-Americans in some jobs and they hired women in some jobs. And they said, well, so they're not discriminating. The problem is they were hiring African-American men into more stereotypically male jobs and they're hiring women into more stereotypically female jobs, but they weren't hiring African-American women. And so Dr. Crenshaw was saying, basically, before you want to change something, you have to name it. And it's this idea that we have multiple identities. Every individual has multiple identities. It could be what country you're from. It could be what class you come from. It could be your race. It could be your religion. It could be whether you are neurotypical. Do you have ADD or do you have dyslexia or are you disabled physically? There's tons of different types of ways and identities that we bring to the table. It could be that you're a parent, right? Now, traditional intersectionality often is focused on things like sexuality, gender identity, race, and gender. So things that we're, you know, often born with. And understanding how those different things intersect, where you've got stereotypes for one group, one of your identities, that intersect with different stereotypes about a different identity. So you can't look at women as a block, right? You can even look at white women as a block, but you can't look at women as one block. There's tons of different types of women. You can't look at men as a block. There's tons of different types of men with different kinds of identities. You have to think about how bias and expectations are going to play out for, for each individual, to be honest. And it makes it really complicated. And then you're interacting with your actual context, your company. What's the culture there? Sure. What are the expectations? What's the social context? This is really complicated stuff Extremely to unpack. complicated. I feel like I have to plug. Kimberly Crenshaw is actually a Cornell alum. I did not know yeah. that. That's really uh, cool. Fun fact. So let's get into another really big concept called the motherhood penalty. Can you explain the motherhood penalty for our listeners? Shelley Corral was a professor here at Cornell when she did that research and now is actually at Stanford. The motherhood penalty is kind of what it sounds like, which is that there are specific biases about mothers and their competence, their ability to engage productively at work, their commitment to work, and things like that. The specific research that Shelley did that I think got the most attention was she sent out resumes of men and women where they simply changed a couple things on it. They changed the name of the individual and they changed their the little box about their extracurricular activities to indicate parenthood or not parenthood. So it was like a neighborhood association, if I'm getting this right, or a parent-teacher association. That may not be exactly right, but it was something along those lines. And they, they actually set up a telephone callback number for each resume, each condition, and sent them into real marketing jobs, I believe that were posted in the New York Times or some major newspaper classified ads. And they measured the callback rate. And what they found is that mothers got way, way, way fewer callbacks than fathers did. In fact, fathers got a bump over and above single men. 
and mothers were by far the most seen as the least attractive candidates, even though these resumes were basically identical. And, you know, she's delved further into it. And so what you find is that this is a special penalty over and above the penalty that women in general are going to be subject to as a result of being women. And it goes to, you know, the notion that they simply aren't going to be able to carry out a job as effectively once they've had a child. How do you think about the motherhood penalty together with the double bind? They're obviously deeply connected, but are they maybe the result of one core bias? Or are they results of somewhat distinct biases playing out to then have negative effects on women in the workplace? Basically, how do you think about the way the motherhood penalty and the double bind interact with each other? There's certainly overlap in terms of the underlying biases around the nature of women being communal and what their role in society should be as being in the home and taking care of others and other-oriented and and things like that. In fact, I like to joke with my students that I often wonder if a woman is alone in a room, is she still a woman? Because all of the descriptors of the typical female are that you're in relation to others. You're helpful, you're kind, you're caring, you're emotional. (laughs) You can't do that with just yourself. You can't just do that with yourself, (laughs) where men can just be intelligent, right? A man can just be strong, right? So they're definitely intertwined, but they are also distinct because women out there in the world experience the penalties of the double bind all the time without being mothers, right? So I think that the motherhood penalty has its own heightened assumptions about the nature of motherhood. So maybe stronger levels of femininity, communality. You know, also, I mean, I've interacted with people who simply believe that All those hormones that come up during motherhood literally make your brain not work as well, which has not been proven by research. (laughs) And, you know, I think that being a mother, it heightens the salience, if you know what I mean, but the the strength Uh. of any stereotype about women. So, you know, it's one thing to see a woman here in the workplace working, but now you hear, you know, you see her pregnant or you hear her talking about her child or all of those heightened stereotypes about the nature of women being mothers and being communal are going to be heightened. That shortcut is shorter, maybe. Yeah, and the degree the stereotype is going to come up all the time. Then we also just have, let's be honest, our society strongly pushes the idea that the primary parent and caregiver in the home, caregiver of older adults and the home, but especially children, should be women. And that that is a biological imperative. And so if you believe in that, which our society very much pushes that idea, it sort of makes sense that there's going to be extra special discrimination against mothers. Another idea we wanted to discuss was similarity attraction bias. How does this play into gender in the workplace? It's a huge effect. And it doesn't just play into gender in the workplace. It plays into how everybody is hired, promoted, maybe not everybody, but most. The reality is, sort of, you've heard the term, birds of a feather flock together, homophily. People tend to be attracted to those that are similar. So similar attraction bias, which means the person, the senior person in the office is interviewing a candidate or meets an intern, they're more likely to feel affinity and a connection with that younger person if that younger person looks like the way they used to be 20 years ago. See themselves in the younger Exactly. Person. It's totally human. It's absolutely common. And, you know, people do it across all those different kinds of intersectionality, yeah. right? 
The problem is, or at least in my view, the problem is, given the structure of our current society, is that the vast majority of people in senior or leadership managerial positions at the more senior level are white men. And so that similarity attraction bias will perpetuate the hiring, promotion, mentoring, sponsoring, feedback for younger white men. So, you know, it perpetuates it. You have to interrupt those cycles by having those senior people really go outside of maybe their comfort zone and look to support, mentor, hire, and promote those that don't look like them, which is not our normal human instinct. It makes a lot of sense to me that you have to be on offense about this because this attraction bias is just going to bubble up everywhere. Yeah. And if you're not on offense about trying to correct for it, the status quo is just going to be maintained and continue. And something I haven't brought up in this this conversation yet, but I think is incredibly important, and I should have brought it up when, when I talked about stereotypes, is this is not similarity attraction bias and what I was just talking about white males. This is not nefarious. This is not white men doing something, you know, evil, generally speaking. I've run into discriminatory people we all have that are very quite intentional. And by the way, they come in lots of shapes and sizes and races and colors and genders. But it's perpetuating because this whole gender system is a it's a system, right? It's not individuals, generally speaking, doing the wrong thing on purpose. It's that they're either completely blind to they're, because they're male, for example, in the case of gender, they're blind to the challenges that women are seeing. They're just mentoring a younger person. It just happens that younger person is someone they connect with. There's nothing nefarious in that. And it's also really important that people understand that these biases and stereotypes are held by anyone really that's grown up in that society. That includes men and women. So everybody engages in stereotypes. It's not just, hey, this is the bad, you know, guys doing something bad to women. Maybe we could get into what men can do and why men should really care about how gender bias takes form in the workplace. And I guess really in any organization. So there's a couple of different answers to why anyone should care, but in particular why men should care, given that they're, they're benefiting in some ways societally, at least in organizations and in terms of leadership representation. One is there's a good business case, kind of a common sense business case for having more diversity in organizations. And I'm sure some of the people out there in your audience have seen research that correlates the representation of women on boards or in senior leadership management teams with financial performance of companies. There's tons of research that shows that. There is a relationship. It's hard to know which way the which direction the relationship goes, because I don't know whether it's because there's more women there or these are great companies that are sort of more forward thinking and therefore there's more women. And I actually didn't realize that until you pointed that out. It's difficult to tell if it's causal or just correlational. Yeah. Yeah, it's correlational. Right. It's correlational, not cause and effect. That said, there is some great research around the benefits of diversity. So Kathy Phillips at Columbia University did a great piece in, I think it was in Scientific American, called Why Diversity Works. And basically, it plays on the idea that cognitive diversity is great for innovation, creativity in groups. 
And in order to get cognitive diversity, one way to get that cognitive diversity is to have diversity in the kinds of backgrounds of people. So diverse genders, diverse race, because those people are bringing in diverse experiences. What's interesting also is that when individuals who look different from each other are interacting with each other, because they don't have that same level of comfort and similarity, they actually bring greater cognitive resources to the interactions. They come better prepared. They're more likely to advocate for their own views and listen carefully to the other views, where if everybody is looks the same, they tend to all go along into even what we call groupthink, and you don't get the same kind of benefits. Now, it can create more conflict in those groups, but if you're working within a context where the organization really values that diversity, explicitly says, no, we want that, people will keep to the cognitive conflict, and it gives you better answers. So one is just kind of the business case. There's also the business case of, you know, designing products for your customers who are going to be made up heavily of both men and women in most cases. And not having any women at the table to design those, probably not a great idea. It also, you're hiring from a bigger pool, right? So, you know, if you're going to select all of your leadership from 50% of the population, you're not getting the best people. You want to select from 100% of the pool. So those are all good kind of business common sense arguments for why men who are often running organizations should care. But also, there's a really strong personal reason why men should care about reducing gender stereotypes. And although women tend to suffer from gender stereotypes more in terms of leadership advancement in the workplace around pay and those kinds of things, stereotypes also affect men. And, you know, there's research that shows that the stereotypes that men are subjected to, which is that they are strong and fearless and non-emotional, bear a pretty heavy price in terms of they die younger, they're more likely to engage in and be victims of violent crime, they're less likely to seek out health care of any kind, they are more likely to commit suicide. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of penalties, and just as our society expects and requires often that women be the primary caregiver for family members, it sort of doesn't allow men to be. And so for men that live full lives where they get to maybe have the choice of being a stay-at-home parent or just being a more engaged parent, that will be looked on much more negatively than a woman who makes that choice. And so I guess my mission in life around gender is not, yes, I want to advocate for women. I am a woman, and I saw the lack of women in leadership throughout my career, and I would like to change that because I think it'll make our society better. But I also want to reduce stereotypes to allow men, like my little boy who's 11 years old, to live a full life where he's allowed to be emotionally expressive, where he can be vulnerable or he can be sad. He doesn't just have to be angry or proud, which is kind of men get two emotions, pride and anger. You know, I want him to be able to live a full life. I want him to be able to be as much of an active parent as he wants to be in relation to his work. And by the way, if you do that for men, guess what? It takes the burden off women, and then the women that want to be more work-focused will have that option as well without being sanctioned. 
lowering the barriers like uncorrals everybody out yeah, of these just boxes. Stop putting people in boxes. <laughs> and by the way, that's just gender. I mean, you know, there's many other places that reducing stereotypes will allow people to be more full humans. And, you know, I think that's a good thing for our society. So given that these gender biases really negatively affect women, but also negatively affect men, too, and also given that today in 2019 there happens to be more men in leadership positions than women, what can men do to help effect change and correct for ongoing gender bias? So I love your question because I think all too often the expectation is that women are the ones that sort of need to take the lead to change organizations and change society on their own behalf. And the reality is that the power players are the men. So you have to get men to the table. And people ask, and most of the men I know want to help, but they often don't know what to do. So there's a number of different ways that I think men can be helpful. One is they do need to get knowledgeable about this stuff and try to understand and learn, perhaps from their female colleagues, about what it is like to experience gender bias of the kind that women experience, things like around the double bind. The reality is that most men have good intention, but because they carry that privilege of being men, they just don't think about it. It's not that they don't care or they haven't even gotten to the point of caring because it hasn't occurred to them that it's an issue. My son told me the other day after my ancestry report said I was 99.7% European, he said, you're so white because <laughs> um, he's a quarter Latino. And that I'm very white. It means I'm have to go way out of my way to understand the privilege that I have as a white person. And I will never, despite all any efforts and all efforts, I'll never know what it's like to be a person of color. And so a man's never going to know what it's like to be discriminated against as a woman. But trying to understand, I think, is a great starting point. With that understanding, being knowledgeable of the double-blind is things like first policing yourself so that when you are listening to a woman speak and she's seeming a little abrasive or shrill, two of my favorite terms for women, just ask yourself, well, okay, is she really behaving differently than any of the guys in the room? I had an MBA student who took my women in leadership class who came to class one day and said, I know this is off topic, but I just have to say it. I've been sitting in a section with a woman all semester who drove me crazy because she always was raising her hand and she was always speaking up and I felt like she was just dominating. And then I took a step back and one class I just watched and I realized that she wasn't contributing or raising her hand any more than the main contributors who were men. It was a profound point for him. So you have to start policing your own behavior. And then once you've gotten better at that, you can start maybe being, when women aren't in the room, be an ally and a man makes a disparaging or sexist comment about a woman, just say, hey, you know, I, I don't agree with you or, gee, not cool, right? Something like that. They're such simple things. But when a woman has been talked over in a meeting or has put out an idea and nobody picks up on that idea... Worse yet, a guy picks up on it a little later and everyone thinks it's a great idea, right? This is the worst thing. Cite your sources, people. If someone says an right. idea, say, oh, no, but Susan's it could happen idea. right there, right? Yeah, and I so know it happens all the time. Redirecting, but you don't really want to be conflictual about it. It's better because that person, that man probably didn't do it on purpose. So instead, just redirect. 
redirect to the woman, give her the opportunity, especially if you're the group leader, you have to look for this stuff. You will not notice it probably at first. By the way, women leaders might not notice it either because they're engaging in gender stereotypes. So those are some kind of basic individual things, but things that men can do both individually and organizations need to do is look at giving women leadership development opportunities. So often women get less feedback, they get less sponsorship and less opportunities because people make assumptions about them. So it might be, oh, there's this great international assignment and you don't, it doesn't occur to you to offer it to the woman because you know she's married and you just assume her husband wouldn't move. Where a guy, you wouldn't necessarily think that. Stop doing that. Things like being a sponsor. What do I mean by that? Using your political capital for a woman who's really great and saying to her, hey, go take on this high profile but maybe riskier project and I got your back. And then tell your colleagues, you know, hey, this slightly more junior woman, she's going to, I want her to lead this project. We know it's a stretch for her. Put it out there. And if it goes well, great. Give her the next opportunity. And she's proven herself. If it doesn't go well, just like you would for a man that you're supporting, you would not make it about her gender. You'd say, well, it was a the problem. horrible because everyone needs feedback to get right. better. One, everyone need the needs feed. the feedback. Yeah. So women get less. But when they get it, it's more vague. So there's not anything they can do with it. So men get more tangible feedback that they can take as actionable. So you have to be conscious of that if you, especially if you're a more senior man, you know, pay attention to the kind of feedback you're giving. And, you know, that can be scary, right? Because I know a number of men who say, well, I don't want to give too specific feedback because it might be taken as discriminatory. She might cry. There is research Real research that men gave the main answer that they, the reason they were reluctant to give feedback to junior women is they were afraid she would cry. I get that. That's human. But, wow, your inability as a, as a leader to deal with a person, happens to be a woman, showing emotion is getting in way of that person developing and moving up in your organization. So somehow you, you and the organization has to create a culture And the woman herself has to create a safe space by asking for feedback. And, you know, it's okay to show emotion, but don't blame it on the guy, right? So there's a lot of pieces that have to happen, but all of those things are critical to allow women to get the benefit of the kind of feedback, development, support, and even, uh, and lack of bias that men regularly benefit from in organizations. I'd like to also bring up a related point that I've heard you make. I find it really interesting. The point is that it shouldn't always fall on women to take the helm of an initiative to implement change for some of these things. Yeah, in fact, exactly the opposite. A couple of research studies have come out in the last couple of years that showed that when a woman leads a gender initiative to help advance women, it's worse for the woman leader and it's less effective than when a man does it. For two reasons. One, it's sort of expected. So, and women generally are expected to be more helpful. So, when they are helpful, they get less credit than a man. But secondly, it often has an air, there's an air of suspicion around it that the woman's doing it out of self interest. So, if a man takes on that initiative, he's only going to get credit and there's not going to be any knock on his career. And because it's a man doing it, it tends to have more profound implications and effectiveness with other men who tend to be the senior people in the organization. So, you know, any organization that wants to take this stuff on, really the leadership has to start at the top with the tone at the top. 
So if you want to open up conversations around bias and get people to connect on a human level, which is really what you have to do if you want to change culture, you can't be like, hey, we're going to drop in and do a quick little class on unconscious bias and make everybody feel defensive and call out every, you know, slightly off-color remark that's made. If you go there, you're just putting more and more fear into the mix and keeping people from communicating. So if you want to create the opposite, what I call learning orientation, you want to get people to learn about gender bias and and race and all these different identities from a place of curiosity. If they're coming from a place of learning and curiosity, you know, cut them a little slack in terms of maybe they don't phrase the question the right way. But in doing so you will get people to communicate and you'll lower some of those barriers. And the leader has to start it. The leader has to be the one who expresses that vulnerability, who admits they've said something biased one time in the past. Or if somebody calls them out on a statement, they own it and they say sorry. And they say, how could I say that better? As opposed to, oh, no, I didn't mean it. That was, why are you so sensitive? Blah, 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 which is often the response you get. Much of what we've talked about connects to a 2006 Harvard Business Review article called Rethinking Political Correctness. And I know that article was important to some of your thinking on gender bias. Maybe I could read a passage from the very beginning of that article and get your reaction to it. That'd be great. So the article begins, A white manager fears she will be perceived as racist if she gives critical feedback to her Latino subordinate. A black engineer passed over for promotion wonders whether his race has anything to do with it. But he's reluctant to raise this concern, lest he be seen as playing the race card. A woman associate who wants to make partner in an accounting firm resists seeking coaching on her leadership style. She worries that doing so would confirm the notion that women don't have what it takes to make partner. Your reaction? First of all, think of those sentences just loaded with fear. Every single one. Also loaded with a desire to develop and to be understood as human beings and to advance, and to not offend anybody or be offended, right? Mostly not offend anyone else. There's a lot of good intention there, but it's not resulting in any of those people developing, giving feedback, getting feedback, helping each other. Why is that? Well, the premise of the article, which was the lead author is Robin Ely, who's done a lot of great work around this. The premise of the article is that Political correctness perhaps had an appropriate place at at one point, and it can. We don't want people walking around making intentionally bigoted and derogatory comments about people that aren't like themselves. But that political correctness has also stifled communication. And the idea of the article is that if you really want to change culture, you have to get people to have it's a hot, hot phrase these days, courageous conversations. They have to get over the fear or better yet, be in an organization that has lessened the fear and the penalty and be able to actually understand each other better. Because the reality is most people want to do the right thing. They want to be fair. They want to communicate and be in a culture where other people feel comfortable. But that is not what exists in most organizations today. And so I'm a big proponent of moving organizations in that direction. And, and she provides a framework in the article, which I've found useful in my own life. It's helped me in moments where somebody has called me out on making a biased statement. And 
a person's initial reaction when somebody says, you made this comment and it was really offensive, is to be defensive, is to think of all the reasons why that couldn't possibly be true and the intention, because the intention wasn't there. Instead, what they purport and what they recommend is just pause for a minute, find a way to connect. Now, they're going from the side of, say, you've been offended, but it also is important if you are the offender. So it can go either way. And I've played this on both sides where somebody says something, you know, that was a blatantly, you know, sexist remark. And instead of jumping down their throat and saying, oh, my God, you're such a sexist, I can't believe you said that, which is not productive, it's take a deep breath and say, huh, you know, you just made this comment and it doesn't seem typical of who I know you to be as a person. And it bothered me. Could you help me understand where you were coming from? Or, oh, did you mean to put it that way? You can also make a joke, right? You can, you know, be a little bit humorous with it. There's lots of ways, but you're connecting with the person. You're giving them space to not have to react offensively, but react in a way that they can explain. And then you can educate them on why what they said was offensive to you. And you all may never actually agree, but you can make some movement in the direction of, them understanding. One example I would give is I also taught entrepreneurship at Cornell. And in my entrepreneurship class, there was a a great student, a woman who happened to be from Saudi Arabia and, you know, dressed modestly but didn't her a job or anything like that. And I came to know this about her over the semester. And before she left, graduated, because it was her last semester, I made a point to ask her, and, and I was putting a burden on her to do this, but I asked her if she would mind sitting down with me and having coffee with me at least once, and we ended up doing it a couple times, so that she could educate me about her actual experience as a woman in Saudi Arabia as opposed to my lens, which is coming from the Western media. And I learned a lot. And the only thing I would say is I also had to be mindful that I'm imposing upon her. She probably went through the day a lot having to educate other people. And that's not her responsibility. It was a gift that she was willing to do that for me. And so sometimes maybe a better thing would have been let me go read what I can to learn about this, but I didn't have great resources to do that. Or maybe I was just being lazy and and she was kind to do that. If you want to learn about somebody else, sure, great. Ask the person from that group. Ask about their experience of race or their experience of gender. But maybe first, go go educate yourself a little bit. Susan, this has been an outstanding conversation. Are there any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I feel like I'm probably being somewhat repetitive with this, but I guess I would just ask, and it's something that I say to my classes over the years, every year, There's one thing, just one thing that I would love if your listeners would take away from this conversation and that I ask my students to take away from the class is just to go out into the world a little bit better educated about bias and stereotypes and use that little bit of knowledge you've hopefully gotten today to go through the world questioning your assumptions about other people. So stereotypes are so part and parcel and embedded in our societal belief systems. And we're taught them through the air, through our interactions in a very subtle way. And so they're highly embedded. And the only way to get rid of them and to reduce them is for us to just start looking at the world with a little bit different lens. And I'm not telling you what to think, but simply question whether everything you've always thought about 
men and women, is that right? Is the way that you're viewing men and women the same? Are you treating them the same? Are you thinking about them the same? And how could you get more out of your life and your relationships and give them more opportunity to be themselves if you stop layering your assumptions on top of them all the time? Susan, thank you so much for joining us on Present Value. It was really wonderful having you on. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, Jack Moriarty here, first year producer on the Present Value team. If you're curious to learn more about the topics covered in this episode, you can connect with a number of Johnson resources, including the Women's Management Council, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, and JAWS, or Johnson Allies for Women, an allyship group for men. These groups actively elevate awareness of gender equity issues by leading and organizing major events like Johnson Women in Business and Johnson Women in Tech, fostering rich campus conversations, and by hosting expert speakers like Dr. Fleming. So join the conversation, and thanks for listening. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team, Harrison Job, Caroline Wright, Chris Alberico, Serena Alavia, Bernardo Espinoza, James Feld, Jack Moriarty, and Jonathan Tin. I'm your host for this episode, Michael Brady. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz, music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kalechi Pomongo, and special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.